things within thy veins! Welcome to Talking Beasts from NarniaWeb.com, where we explore the world of C.S. Lewis and keep a watchful eye on the latest Narnia movie news. This is Talking Beasts. Welcome to the season finale of Talking Beasts. I'm Glum Puddle. And I'm Jim Fan. And I'm Rillian. And welcome back, Jim Fan. Your background looks a little different. It is different. I have moved. That has been a process, but I have Wi-Fi. I have electricity, which you wouldn't think would be a thing you'd have to worry about, but it has been. <laughs> you need both of those things to record a podcast, so... I'm happy I was able to get it all back together in time for the finale. You're not bicycling like to generate electricity <laughs> or anything. You, you actually have you it provided. You can't see what's under the desk. <laughs> uh, got it all set up just in time to discuss the big finale of the BBC Narnia quadrilogy. We're talking about the sixth and final episode of BBC's The Silver Chair today. I'm kind of sad. It's been uh, several years going through these BBC series, and this has been really fun. Um, yeah, it took us it took us longer than I thought it would initially, but I guess we've only been doing a couple episodes every season, so it has been a while. Uh, we even extended our season a little bit longer so we could uh, finish it up. Episode 6 of The Silver Chair, we left off with Lady the Green Kirtle. Bursting in and finding the silver chair destroyed and asking how dare they could destroy the silver chair. And she then tries silver to convince chair. them. Yes, she tries to convince them that <laughs> Overworld exactly like that. never existed. And we know that uh, eventually the smell of burnt marsh wiggle ends up being in the air because he stamps out the fire. Although in this version, it's a burnt hand, not a burnt foot. She turns into a rubber snake and they kill her. And they escape <laughs> Underland. Uh, the Earthmen commit suicide. Yes, the Earthmen <laughs> jump to their deaths, apparently. Su- suicidal Earthmen. Uh, they get higher and higher. They escape Underland. And um, Caspian tragically dies uh, just after meeting his son. Jill and Eustace go to Ascent Country and see a resurrected Caspar ghost Caspian, you could say. Aslan tells them that in our world he has another name. They've moved that line from Don Treader to here. I definitely want to talk about that. And it ends with Aslan and Caspian ascending into heaven. Ends on a nice little montage. One or two shots from every BBC adaptation. But there we are. We're finished. Jim Fan, uh, uh, you've got to make up for lost time here. You've got to do twice the talking to make up for your absence. Um, no, we're, we're only talking about this episode today. <laughs> that's right, so if that's I right. say I watched it, I got caught up. I have to say I liked this episode better than the penultimate episode. I thought the pacing was good. They crammed quite a lot in there in one episode. That was quite a packed for it being what 20 25 minutes well it's pretty disjointed i think it starts out they really take their time on the lady of the green kirtle deception and stamping it and puddle glum speech and then uh, by the time they escape underland they go into the the pacing goes full prince caspian mode it just wants to get over with as quick as possible pretty much so that's how they yeah, crammed it all like, in there and we're done <laughs> well we start off with uh the lady of the green kirtle uh trying uh trying to deceive them and convince them that underland is the only world and overworld was just a dream. Um, and I think this is the a really big challenge with adaptation. I mean, it's a challenge in the book as well. And Lewis did a good job with it. But you have to, it's a situation where characters in the story are being um, 
they're under a spell. It's the influence of the ah oh, the green mist. Ah, oh, were you, oh. <laughs> it was literally the green mist. Oh, that was painful. <laughs> So the Lady of the Green Kirtle was spitting out bits of green smoke out of her hands, and it was like, oh, this slots in way too well with the Dawn Shredder movie. It's too soon. It's only been like 13 years. <laughs> it's too soon. But, uh, yeah, a situation where characters on the screen are under a spell and they're questioning, wow, maybe we did just make up the sun. Maybe it was all a dream. But obviously, as readers, as viewers, we're not questioning that. We've got our world right in front of us. We know that's not the case. And so I always find that to be a really challenging thing with this kind of scene. And I suppose thou art queen of Narnia. Pretty one. <laughs> I'm nothing of the sort. We come from another world. That other world is all a dream. All a dream. There never was such a world. There never was such a world. There never was any world but mine. Never any world. Making that, if not relatable, at least believable. Uh, and it even goes back to, you know, making it credible that, you know, the White Witch could take Edmund in. He could he could deceive him. Even if we, the audience, are not deceived, making it credible that Edmund could be deceived. You have a similar thing here. Um, and uh, in my opinion, the big problem here is that the Lady of the Green Kirtle is completely wrong. <laughs> um, everything about Lady of the Green Kirtle was completely wrong. That was how I felt about it. What do you think, Rillian? Podcaster Rillian. To <coughs> oh, oh, okay. I'll, I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll stop thinking of myself as a as royalty. Um, overall, just kind of dissatisfied. Um, I felt like the the two big segments of the film were the climax with the witch, and then after that the wrap up and i felt like the wrap up was entirely lacking in emotion and drama and a lot of it was just lip service kind of like what i talked about in earlier episodes uh, podcast episodes where i said sometimes they get into this check the box mode with the bbc stuff well, we got to have this part in there and this part in there even though there's no oomph behind it and then yeah just the um i thought overall the actors like i liked jill in this episode I liked overall liked Puddle Glum in this episode. I thought that post uh, crazy Rillian was a much I was just a better acting bit by the actor. It's a more subdued performance. Certainly. It's a more subdued performance. I thought it was a a, a big improvement over kind of how we see him in the last episode. Uh, Eustace looked high the entire time. Like, <laughs> like, he looks stoned. He is not like which maybe that's what he was like being directed to do. But it was very kind of coming across as very weird because he's kind of like the only one going to that extreme. As he's being as he's being taken in by the spell, it's yeah, yes, there never was a sign. But it, but it is. I mean, the the actress for the witch has to carry that scene, and it's really that that scene it has to be carried by the witch and and Puddleglum. And I felt like it just it was so over the top and cheesy and just, um, yeah, it was kind of cringe. 
Uh, yeah, I think that the, yeah, the Barbara Kellerman, I mean, similar problem that she had playing the White Witch, I think. It's just completely not credible that they, even with the, um, under the influence of the fire, I have to wonder if you haven't read, have, I do wonder if you haven't read the book, if it's clear that the fire is, uh, you know, influencing the mirror. I thought so. Well, but it's also weird because, like, she runs up like, she, like yeah, just, like, and it's like, Wait, they're not enchanted yet. That should be a clue. There's like something bad is happening. <laughs> you get the sense that it's more. It's a little, she's a little more subtle about it in the I, book. Um, I feel like this was this was worse than uh, *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* because in the book there's really only one segment where uh, the witch is acting nice, and it's with where she's uh, enticing Edmund when she meets him. It's kind of like the first bit right where she's acting uh, kind to him in, in, in a way and after that the, the gloves come off uh here it, up until she becomes a snake really like the entire time she's supposed to look appealing I mean, of course the reader knows that she's a witch and she's bad um but it's in the book anyway she's supposed to be it's kind of belie- it's supposed to be believable that someone could fall for for some of this. Here, it's kind of like I'm not sure where the drama is. I guess that's why they were had to be so heavy handed with. Here's the dust. Here's it was putting the green mist right. in their faces. And, and that's like, the thing that I can it, imagine someone listening saying, "Well, what do you mean it's not believable? Obviously, they're under a spell, and that's the reason right. why they're falling." Which is the only way it. to do it. It's almost like the Obi Wan. You don't need to see the identification. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Like Obi Wan's not persuasive or charismatic. He's just doing the hand wavy thingy and Jedi mind tricking them. Mm-hmm. But you still want it to be b- believable on some level, even if there's magic involved. Yeah, yeah I did feel like they. It was really over the top and dramatic and that definitely like my first impression of the Lady of the Green Kirtle when she started talking was like, okay, like tone it down for a second woman. There there was one part though that I felt like it kind of took me a little bit aback and that I was like, oh, that actually feels like a little creepy and like you're like okay you're, you're actually super powerful it was like right after she like made the you know put the spell on the fire and they all start getting high or whatever it was that they're doing <laughs> and they have that that beat where Rillian comes at her with her with the sword and she just she puts her hand on it. She just puts it away. I did like that. It's like the the, the tip of Rillian's sword against her hand and that's such a great visual of the power she has over him. Exactly. And I felt that was, I really felt that was well done because it took it from, like, yes, it was still really cheesy and really dramatic and, you know, putting the green mist in people's faces and talking super dramatically. But that one moment kind of sold it for me in terms of like, oh, she is actually a very legitimate threat to them as opposed to just this crazy talking lady who's doing weird stuff. Crazy talking lady. (laughs) (laughs) It was this crazy talking lady, which is weird because she didn't play that. It's almost like she was a different person at Harfang or before Harfang. She... It was a different way to play the Lady of the Green Kirtle. I kind of would have liked to have seen her try to do the same thing here. Uh, well, I, I think what Barbara Kellerman is going for is like she's talking to children. You know, like she's being very, you know, she's talking to them like, oh, uh, uh, the sun hangs on what? And, oh, did you, you've imagined this overworld. Oh, cute, fancy, these children's games. And, um, but I think the right way to play the scene, in my opinion, for the Lady of the Green Kirtle would be like, uh, like motherly concern. 
um, like, you know, concern that like the way you might talk to a, a friend who was mentally ill or schizophrenic or something where, you know, asking questions like, oh, so um, like the, the, the so you say the sun hangs in the air. It it, it hangs on, hangs on what, though? Like trying basically to... hardcore gaslighting them, but like in a really nice way. Yeah, I think it's like uh, there should be a sense of uh, concern. And you know, Cody kind of brought this up in the Facebook group that she's got more of a motherly kind of quality in the book and i agree and her her hold over really in here feels vaguely sexual unlike the book where again it's more of a motherly kind of fake kind of uh except it kind of is because she he was supposed to be her king and she was the queen right uh-huh so th- i'm not but, saying they, i'm just saying like it sure. wasn't supposed to be completely mother-son right. relationship in the book. right no and, and, uh, either way i don't mind it i like the idea i think it makes the i think it's a way of making the deception more believable like believable that really might possibly be taken in against his better judgment again that's the whole challenge here is making it believable um that characters on screen are being taken in when obviously uh we're not but yeah lady the barbara kellerman here she's she's anything but scary in my opinion and she just loses her temper throws tantrums um and it says Zero percent. I think I don't care how magic, how strong that green mist is. As an audience, I just don't buy that the characters are are, are going to fall for it. So, um, her, her her yeah. So everything about the Lady of the Green Kirtle was just wrong, and I think that had um a domino effect. I think that's one of the reasons why Puddleglum's speech, even though I thought Tom Baker did a nice job and did an especially good job with, I'm going to live like a Narnian even if there isn't any Narnia. I thought that was fantastic. But it was just undercut by the Barbara Kellerman's performance um, being so hammy of it before and after that. In that case, it seems to me that the made-up things are a good deal better than the real ones. And if this black pit of a kingdom is the best you can make... Then it's a poor world. And we four can make a dream world to lick your real one hollow. How dare you threaten me? So that was the major, major flaw of this episode and the climax of uh, of the story. Somehow or other, it works in the book. You just kind of get lulled to sleep and... I'm not saying that the book actually made me question if the sun was real, but you you do kind of well, you understand that headspace though. It is book. a little difficult also because they're trying, and I thought they did a mostly good job because they do trim down the dialogue, um, but they do keep a lot of the key lines right, some of the most memorable lines. Um, but there was a little bit that I I missed that I love from the book that it's kind of like I, what you say as a reader, kind of like that compelling counter logic that she's giving. There's a line. Um, where she challenge she's challenging really, and and he says he said hangeth in the sky, and she says hangeth from the what, my lord, and of course it's kind of stumps him, and he gets frustrated. She says, "You see, when you try to think out clearly what the sun must be, you cannot tell me. You can only tell me it is like the lamp. Your sun is a dream, and there is nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing. The sun is but a tale, a children's story, and it's kind of this." she kind of reorients everything to where they, you know, they're having trouble even describing it without something in her so there, world. Yeah. There's, she, she doesn't just blow green smoke in their face. There, there's a certain logic there mm-hmm. where you can see where if you were having trouble thinking, maybe you'd be taken in. Right. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of the sorcery and sudden vengeance scene where Nickabrick lays out a pretty convincing case that maybe Aslan just died, you know? And mm-hmm. 
and like and it really like, well very, some people say yeah know, that he came back but yeah you know. he, he makes a, a really logical case where the only if i was there the only way i could refute him was i read the book and i know that you're wrong um so that i think that's a really excellent point really in that my feeling about the BBC this episode is that it's just green smoke, and that's the only explanation for why they would be taken in. But there's, it's it's so much. Uh, but she doesn't just blow green smoke at them. She actually does use some mm-hmm. interesting logic and just because, twist things around. The thing is, in the book, because she's using that kind of logic, it 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 that explains why Puddleglum is the last one to be taken in. Because he of the four would have to be the last one, because he is the one who is the most grounded in things Narnia. Brilliant's been separated from it and enchanted. The children have barely been in Narnia, and I think that that kind of speaks more to Puddleglum's character. Whereas here is kind of like, well, but Puddleglum maybe he does, didn't inhale as much. But 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 Puddleglum, <laughs> but Puddleglum does get taken in. Puddleglum, that whole point of his speech is to say, you know what? Maybe you're right. Right. But, but I said he's the last to kind of be taken in. Yeah, he's he's like the last one resisting. Yeah, but but Puddleglum doing what he does, which is uh, accept the worst case scenario and choose to put a bold face on it. But in the book, that's what, and I guess here too, that's what leads him to the truth. Because once he says, "Well, I guess, I guess this underworld, I guess it is the only world. I guess the sun was, I guess it was just a dream." Well, then it seems to me that's a, a lot more important. Then it seems to me that the fake things are a lot more important. And I think that what Puddleglum is saying between the lines is. But that's absurd. That can't be true. That right. doesn't it's make not, any sense. It's not, I mean, it's not a case for postmodernism of oh, reality doesn't matter. It's just whatever we feel like. It's 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 what he's saying is if your claim to reality is that, well, actually, all those other things aren't even part of reality. The only only part of reality is basically this room and what's outside of it. Um, and you say, well, wait a minute. If you're limiting reality to just those bare things. Well, now reality isn't actually worth as much because you've actually taken away all these other things out of reality. So now if, if that is all you're left with to say reality, well, then now it, it's actually worth less than a non-reality that we could conjure up in our heads. And so because, of course, like you're saying, yes, obviously, Narnia is real. The sun is real. All those other things are real. Uh, I want to pitch something um, as one possible solution for a movie adaptation. Um, as far as a way to, if you really wanted to make the audience question, maybe Narnia is just a dream. Um, it, maybe there's some truth to what she's saying. What if you had multiple, this isn't sounding a little dumb, even as I say it, but what if you had multiple, what if you had, there's already a scene, remember, there's already a scene in the story where Jill has a dream where Aslan comes to her and it's, it, 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 it's basically a nightmare. What if you had a scene earlier in the story where Jill has a scary dream, and, and we? But it's like one of those things where we don't real as an audience, we don't realize it's a dream, and then ah, and then she wakes up, and maybe she even sees the Lady of the Green Kirtle in her dream. So it's kind of like, hey, it's happened like before. a foreshadowing, and then you're wondering if this is a dream or not. And if yeah, if you're wondering, oh, maybe this is just Jill having it. And Lady the, Lady of the Green Kirtle says, you know, no, everything that's happened to you and Narnie here, it's just a dream, and you have to wake up right now. You know. Um, just enough to make the audience go, maybe there is something going on here, you know, and like to just enough to get the audience that bit of just that nugget of uncertainty to put them a little, a little on edge might help them get into that headspace. I don't, you know? I don't really mind that just on a gut reaction. I'm going to here since you have a little pitch here, I'm going to 
throw a grenade into the room and then just okay. close the door and walk away. Because this is another ta- this is another conversation. A to violent do that podcast well, episode today. To do that well, it would it would need a really solid execution. Yeah. From some oh, very yeah. good creative minds. And as I think about future adaptations and thinking about just looking recently on how completely dependent Hollywood has become on previously established intellectual property. And which is fine to do that, but you need great create still need great creativity to be able to actually make it really, really work. Um I don't know if that uh execution could be done well. But well, again, we'll it's see. all we'll about see how good the creative execution is on whatever future non adaptations there are. Well, there, there's could it be done well and will it be done well are your different. Chuck's very different things. That's what a man can do, and that's what a man will do. <laughs> exactly. Two different things. <laughs> okay, let's just briefly talk about Bism. <laughs> oh it actually works. It works in this because he really says the spell is broken. They're no longer slaves to will, which was to mine away. And now they're just like ending it all. Like it's like Harikari, you know, Bism style. But they're, they, they all sound like the Joker. They're all just like la- 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 laughing. That was quite the visual, I have to say. That I was like, "What on earth?" Just, I like the first guy. Like, you don't even see, you don't even see Bism. You just see a chasm open up. The first guy is like a downward angle, looking up at the guy, and he's uh-huh. just like, ah, just jumps. So like, holy, yeah. I I would love to watch this with someone that's never read the book and just what's happening here. <laughs> Be like, what do you think they're doing? Because I don't think it's really super well explained. <laughs> like you, no, you need to like pause it. You pause it. You like you look at them like, what do you think is happening right now? <laughs> it's just oh, we just see a bunch of Earthmen just jumping apparently to their deaths. And of you course, know, like those he, funny reaction videos you've seen people like they've never read the Lord of the Rings or anything, so they just like plop them down. They sit and then they pause intermittently. They go, so what do you think? What you is know? happening here? <laughs> um, I mean, I can appreciate that obviously there were people involved in this production that love Bism because we all love the idea of Bism. There's questions about can you get it into a movie and the because it doesn't you, know, you don't need it. Yeah, I just um, keep wondering what was but, cut because I, even watching the did they Potter film Blum something speech scene? I I re I, I went back, skipped back and rewatched it again because I thought, wait a minute, am I remembering misremembering? Like it's like I remember more dialogue and not just from the book. Like is am I is the radio drama creeping into my memory and altering my memory of this scene is there some other cut because i didn't see a six episode parsing of this i watched a movie version of it uh so i'm like wait what what, what bits were cut out that maybe i haven't seen like the sea serpent you know yeah so anyway so i kind of wonder i just wonder what things they you wonder if they actually it it, maybe if gold was actually filmed it wouldn't Um, surprise me they put enough 
stuff in there, just random little things from the books that, you uh-huh. know. Like they have the shield. The shield turns into Asa. Like, That's is cool. Too- Everyone, let's leave it behind. It's of no material use to us. And they right. just walk out of the room. <laughs> like, wait, what? And it was in the book that that happens um, off screen, if you will. And Rillian discovers the shield. And it's, whoa, a moment ago it was without device. And now it's got the lion on it. And it, they don't do this cheesy, you know, dissolve effect. Um so I think it's a lot more mysterious and more interesting to kind of have it off screen. But anyway, um, uh, really, you mentioned at the beginning of the episode about um, the the end, the last half of this episode in particular, like lap, lacking emotion and just having lip service. And I actually, guess, I guess Bism is a good example of that. Of look, there it is, but it doesn't have any of the things that we see, like about. See, we put it in there. But it doesn't have anything about the things we like about Bism, is it? Like, because it, right. it's not explained what it is. It doesn't look interesting. It just looks like a terrible <laughs> yeah, chasm. They had a, like a little like row of them, like the Bism, yay, the Bism, <laughs> something. Not been a row. But there's other things <laughs> too. Yeah, there's other things too that it, it doesn't have the emotion. I think the disappearance of Jill um, isn't handled well because they rush through it so much. It's not rock. It's earth. We can dig our way through. That's if there's anything to dig to. Is it daylight? At least let's look. In the book, you know, there's that you catastrophe of, um, like they really they don't quite realize how close they are, and they think they're going to be trapped in Underland forever. And then in that moment, they lose Jill, apparently to um, enemies, as they suppose. And by the way, I think this is the first time in the book we've gone away from Jill's POV. Hmm. So it's kind of like kind of feels like, hey, maybe Jill could die because we we just shifted away from her POV for the first time in the whole book. Um, so it's a dark moment in the book and there's a moment of despair of we're never going to get out of here. And we've sent Jill, you know, uh, we sent a maiden into harm's way or whatever. Our, our, our honors are gone forever. Or whatever. It's this literally very dark moment that they, Lewis sits with for a bit before you have the you catastrophe of no, just kidding. We're in Narnia. We're fine. Whereas here, Eustace is kind of like, he's going to like watch her disappear. And then he's kind of like, this could be bad. <laughs> something, something terrible might have happened to her. Yeah, <laughs> like, even pa- even, even Puddlegum's kind of just like, well, whatever. Yeah, they um. just rushed right past that whole thing. Like, it didn't have any emotional beat there, whatsoever. There's an attempt because Puddleglum, there's this interesting bit where they get they, they, they get there and Puddleglum is not even looking at the what might be the escape. He's kind of looking off screen. He just kind of goes, no, it's the end. It's the end and kind of, you know, assuming the worst. And like, it's almost like he can't dare to hope. He just can't bring himself to hope for it because it's too painful. Because what what if it's not? Um, interesting idea, but they just rush through it uh, way too quickly. And that's also true with uh, the death of Caspian, who like literally really and looks at him. Okay, Cas- <laughs> Cas- yeah, Caspian. Uh, but but really and looks over at Chumpkin and nods like, uh, yep, he's dead. You can, you can start the music now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, 
I'm the king. Pay homage to Rillian. Um, I mean, it, it just like, looked like it just they just like, they just went right past that. No one was even sad yeah. except Eustace. You know, shed a shed a he, tear. He does a little. <laughs> it's all, I got something in my eye. I don't know. For Eustace, it's kind of like the. Jim Carrey series extraordinary events like where he takes like the water my bottle squeezes it. <laughs> it, eyes. it just it just looked like yeah it's like Rillian wasn't there to you know have one last interaction with his father he was just there to check his pulse <laughs> <laughs> it's how it, how it comes across King it me it does um well and, uh, yeah it's like and, and Caspian is sort of like uh, yeah <laughs> it's, yeah it's, I don't know it's like but yeah, you're right. I never thought about the little nod. He's like, yep, yep. he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and speaking of rushing through things, but surprising no one, of course, there's no snow dance. And that's a pity. Uh, that That's something where, please, I, I, Netflix, well, okay. please. Can I say I one thing? It, to give a kudos to the BBC that we're lovingly bashing here. Can we give a kudos to BBC for somehow managing to have better centaurs than the Harry Potter movies did ten years later? I mean, it, it's it's very inconsistent though. Like the, it is, the, when the, walking across, it's like okay, it's like you know the cut in half. But like one of the shots, like when like they ride up and then the, he like helps them down. I was like, actually, it's look not at bad. That. Like it's not bad. I'm actually not sure how they did that. The good, I mean, yeah, the, the the good shots are good, but the bad shots are and, bad. And then on the flip side, even the good shots. Yeah. Like in the second Harry Potter movie, we're like, oh boy, you know, this is like Veggie Tales or something. Well, then on the flip side, you know, you you in order to have the decent looking centaurs, you have to sacrifice something, and in this, I I have to think it was the transition from the Lady of the Green Kirtle to the snake because uh. I will be having nightmares about that later, and not for the reasons that you'd think. <laughs> that was weird. It was like they got. Like she, she, I think Barbara Kellerman actually has like like dentures, like fangs, and then they go to a version where it's probably not Barbara Kellerman, I guess. So, but, 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 but like where she's like somewhere halfway. I think they had like a three stage thing. They were wiping yeah, it was before, like and it that. Was, and, and then yeah. it was and then it gets wider too. Snake. It's like oh, like, <laughs> well, and as it was, the Lady of the Green Kirtle, like I said, she's anything but scary, and then she turns into something even less scary: this rubber toy snake that they kill off in two seconds. Um, which I like how Puddle Glove like runs up with his spear and doesn't do anything. He's gonna like, <laughs> and then he just like, once he's dead, he just kind of looks really and puts it back. Uh, I, I guess you got this. Yeah. Um, and and but really was like, thank you, Eustace. Thank you, Glum Puddle. You know, you like they were helping and like they did. I, lo- I also loved when they said thank you, Glum Puddle. <laughs> I like that part too. Just so you know, Jim fan. <laughs> My little oh. cameo. <laughs> they, excuse me, Puddlegum. It's because I'm staring at your na- the name right in front of me. Is that the first time that's <laughs> happened in the series? Did we finally get one? No, I'll I'll take credit. Yes, because I've been talking like yes, the scene with Puddlegum. <laughs> Puddlegum. <laughs> I I've got to figure out when Netflix says Silver Chair. I've got to figure out who is typing up the credits, and I want to be become very good friends with them. And I want to make them become an Arnie Weber. I want to invite them on the podcast several times. And just maybe there'll be a little typo there. I'm just saying. Get them to do it in like one of the obscure language versions where they, you know, do the credits (laughs) in another language or something. Who cares anyway? Yeah. Okay. But yes, still on the subject of uh, rushing through these. uh, So I was just looking here. So uh, King Caspian dies at 19 minutes. Caspian, not even the Caspian that 
uh, Eustace knew. Right. Which so, I thought uh, was super the weird. Cas- the Prince Casper from the Young. I was like, oh, I'm going to see Samuel West. Nope. John Mark Perry. And, and of course, which is why Casper, uh, Eustace looks so confused. He's like, who is this person? I've never seen him before. With our own eyes. Yes, he has died. Most people have, you know. Even I have. I can see what's bothering you. I'm no ghost. If I appeared in Narnia, I suppose I'd be a ghost. But here, in Aslan's country, but anyway, King Caspian dies at 19 minutes. He re- is resurrected at 21 minutes. And then they all float up at 24 minutes. Yeah. That's so, pretty so, fast. So Caspian dies and is resurrected and ascends back, then, but then goes back, back in like just a few minutes. Um. <laughs> three minutes instead of three days. The, 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 the music is amazing. It's heartbreakingly great during Ascent Country. I'll say that. It, it's my yeah, favorite it's like version of the, of the theme. With it, but like... You know, they had a little bit of it where they give some attention when Eustace comes to Jill's room in the, I guess, the first, second episode. Uh, oh, yes, yeah, so this is before they go into the owl tree. Oh, you know, cliffhanger. Uh, so, first episode where he starts to get into it, like, no, 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 like, it's time is different here. And, like, last time I saw him, he was like my age, and now I'm still young, and he's an old man. And so, it kind of gets into a little bit how hard that would be for him. It would have been so cool to have it. it all. To have it be to have him be reunited with Samuel West would have been a really cool thing to see. Yeah, um, I I do agree. Yeah, it actually surprised he, he me. He does look confused, like uh, <laughs> as opposed to like if you saw your friend die and then come back, you'd be overjoyed. You know, I forgot that it wasn't Samuel West. I was genuinely expecting to see him, and then when I didn't, I was like, I don't remember that, but up. Upgrade. And, and maybe, yeah, maybe that does explain why Scrub doesn't really react too much. He's just kind of like, whatever. <laughs> He's like, who in, are in the you? Book, <laughs> it's a great moment in the book. And there's a bit where, you know, in the book where Caspian references, oh, how about the, that time you broke my second best sword? And like, oh, there's nothing like an old joke from, you know, about, between old friends and being, the joy of being reunited. Especially because you know, here's the thing. I have to say, when I, and we, we talked before the show started uh, about the family radio theater adaptations, the bit where Caspian dies in the family radio theater version, it's truly moving. One, it's, it's sad when he dies because it's, uh, it actually has like a reaction. The music's more well done and everything. And then there's a period where they see his body in the river and there's a mourning period and, and Aslan mourns, with you, yeah, right. it's not an instant That's thing. That's not, not here. Instant. They actually spend oh. time there mourning oh. the death of Caspian, even though he's going to be resurrected. Shortly. Even though he's going to be resurrected, it's a, it's a true Lazarus moment where Aslan is truly mourning, not just fixing everything. And but because of that, it also builds the suspense and allows you to feel the emotions too, because you don't think, well, he's just going to fix it. No, he's actually mourning, and you get to experience it with him. Mm. Yep, it's true. I want to read that bit from the book. Let me just pull it up here. Then Aslan stopped, and the children looked into the stream. And there, on the golden gravel of the bed of the stream, lay King Caspian, dead, with the water flowing over him like liquid glass. 
His long white beard swayed in it like a waterweed, and all three stood and wept. Even the lion wept, great lion tears, each tear more precious than the earth would be if it was a single solid diamond. And Jill noticed that Eustace looked neither like a child crying nor like a boy crying and wanting to hide it, but like a grown-up crying. At least that is the nearest she could get to it. But really, as she said, people don't seem to have any particular ages on that mountain. Just taking a moment to, re- even even though in a few seconds, Aslan's going to bring him back to life, the acknowledgement of that doesn't make this, that doesn't make death any less terrible. That doesn't make the pain any less real. And there's nothing wrong with uh, mourning, uh, even though we know that Caspian's going to come back very shortly. And that just feels so... Yeah. So real. And, and and there's none of that here. Here it's all on fast forward. Yeah. And it's not even like there's anything wrong with mourning. It's more like this is a necessary step to the process. And it's fascinating because I, I feel like, yeah, it's something that I've been just learning a lot about in the last few years. And it's it's a very understated but very powerful part of the book that is completely absent in this adaptation and so i would hope that in a future adaptation of the silver chair they could really just even just take a moment because it is it's very powerful and it's it's very true would be so easy to cut is the thing because you be. don't if as far as the plot you don't absolutely need it just in terms of plot i love that it gives a very full view of aslan in this scene it's it's one of my favorite moments of aslan really my I think my three favorite moments of Aslan are uh, when he meets uh, Lucy and Susan after the stone table has been broken and he explains what he did. And then he, when he transforms Eustace and then here where he resurrects Caspian and the way he does it in those three different scenes, it's a, it's a, it's a, a salvation and new life experience each time, but it's very, very, very different in each way that it's told. And I love this element of it here. And it's so beautiful in the book. Yeah. Another beautiful part of a different book is Aslan. There's a moment at the end of Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I see what you did there. Yeah. (laughs) Nice segue. Where, uh, but there's a moment of despair at the end of Voyage of the Dawn Treader where they say in the book, where they say, um, you know, oh, oh, they were at Lucy and Edmund feel like they're about to leave Narnia and never see Aslan again. And it, there's a, a just, just one beat of, oh, Aslan, of despair and devastation. And then Aslan brings them back up and says, but in your world, I have another name. Uh, however, as we noted at the end of our BBC Don Treader uh, discussion, that, lo- that those lines were notably absent from the end of Don Treader and have been transplanted to here. Aslan? Can we stay? No, child. When you meet here again, then you will have come to stay. But now you must go back to your own world. But we want to see you again. And you shall, child. You mean, sir, you are there too, in our world? I am. But there I have another name. You must learn to know me. By that name. That was the very reason you were brought to Narnia. 
that by knowing me here a little, you may know me better there. This is such a memorable, important line that for the character of Aslan um, that so many people, it means a lot to a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. Uh, how do we feel about transplanting it to the silver chair? I was happy it made it in. And I think I, maybe they knew that silver chair was going to be the last adaptation. So they wanted to save it because it's a nice, like, wrap up, like, final line, essentially. That's really the only reason why I can think it was moved. Well, I, I mean, I think it was a. It wasn't just oh, we have to rush through Don. The end of I mean, they did rush through the end of Don Shredder, but I don't think it was. I I I don't think it was just we don't, we we don't have space for it in Don Shredder. Let's move it to Silver Chair. I suspect it was an intentional decision because they thought it would be good to have that line in the in, uh, at to end on that line. I think so. I think it was a creative decision. Um, and look, I mean, it doesn't. I think it doesn't work here, but only for. For basically just because they're rushing through everything and nothing has enough emotional weight here because of how much they're rushing through it, not, in let it, not letting the emotion land. But conceptually, I was looking at this saying, this could totally work. And maybe even just conceptually, maybe it does work a bit better here. Um, I, I think so, so much of the silver chair is about despair and hope. And maybe, and I mean, like, you know, Lewis wrote Don Treader probably thinking it was the last book. And when you read Don Treader, it does kind of feel like the, it, it reads like it's the, the culmination of a trilogy in some ways. Um, I mean, maybe if he would have known he was going to do this in the silver chair, maybe he would have held off on that potentially. Um, it is a significant break because it's the last story we get with this saga of these children, you know, the Pevensey family, uh, uses the other cousin. Uh, and we get two kind of departures. We get a prequel and we get, uh, an inter story, um, from the time of the golden age. And then we get the last battle. Yeah. So, but I guess if we view this as, oh, this is the last, if we're looking at the, talking about the BBC series and we're talking about the last story and a, a four story series, unless you count Caspian and Don Treader as one, but blah, blah, blah. If you're, if you're looking at this <laughs> as the end. Uh, I do like having that line at the end, and I th- it feels uh it f- it feels at home here in this scene about about death and resurrection, hope and despair, and I I think it it it, it feel it does feel I thought it concept again execution wasn't great, but conceptually I feel like it slots into the scene very well. I I agree. I I mean I th- I think this is the better way if you're gonna move and dialogue around and stuff. This is the better way to do it. Um you know, where you have maybe the same character says the same line or a similar character, you know, or as to a similar audience, you know, you know, cause Eustace, Jill and Caspian is not too different an audience than it would have been if it were Eustace, Lucy, Edmund and Caspian, you know? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, thoughts on the ending at experiment house. <laughs> Anticlimactic. <laughs> You got some dynamite for the budget. All right. <laughs> you know, that was like the biggest thing. Hey, guys, we're going to blow something up on the BBC Narnia set. <laughs> Everyone come watch. Man. One take, um... I'm sure. <laughs> One take. Oh, I-, I love the bully's reaction. Just run, run, run. And I love how the other bullies wait for the head bully's uh, permission to run away. <laughs> um, but... um. 
really, really loyal followers there. Um, but yeah, it didn't feel as necessary because, again, it probably just comes back to not setting up the despair of Experiment House enough. Um, yeah, I do think sometimes I've thought, ah, oh, man, this would be hard to do in a way that's not cheesy. It, it, this could it, it would be. Um, it, I I think part of the pleasure in the book is it is kind of absurd. It yes. Is, it, yeah, yes. So it is. It's yes. very much out of left field. You're like Aslan said, what? Do do what? I, it's, it, but in a way, it's kind of the ending I didn't know I wanted in the silver yeah. chair. T- T- Caspian gets his glimpse well, of our world. There's all these other things, and... too, that happen. Like, he just kind of lays out in vague description. Of like, well, and this teacher uh-huh. this was fired, and this person did yes. this. You and know? it's also sad- it's satisfying, though, because I, mean, I really, at the beginning of the book, I feel the despair of Experiment House. I feel them. Uh, uh, the head is crazy. The bullies are running things. And in this, in this BBC series... I didn't feel that at all. In fact, they kind of say the opposite at the end of the beginning of the BBC series. I think however you were to do it, if you were, if you do the a movie or an adaptation and you, if you don't set up time in experiment house, this is not going to work. If you just decide to roll right into Narnia or something, maybe, maybe that's fine, but you're not really going to be able to do this. And maybe you shouldn't because it's not going to feel appropriate in any way. Yeah, I mean, I mean, typically in the movies, they they tried really hard to emphasize and even de- so far in a lot of the adaptations, they've developed and even expanded on the idea that the kids are having certain. They're introduced at the beginning in Act One with certain struggles in our world. You know, Peter was struggling to be a leader to his family, for example, um, and they um, uh, and and it mirrors what they're going through in in Narnia. So I would expect them to stay on that track with an adaptation here and say, okay, Jill and, and, and Eustace, they are struggling with just absolute despair and just they're completely just giving up. They have no hope. And then going to Narnia where they're struggling with um, d- despair and hope and the example Potoglum sets for them. So I think probably they will do something with that. I don't think they'll just say, and after two minutes, boom, they're in Narnia. Um, if history is any guide. Um, it's a shame they don't get to keep their clothes in this version, uh, Cody pointed out. It j- just fades off of them. Oh, that's a good point. They're, they're, they're Narnian clothes. Yeah, they're, 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 there's a bit at the end where it doesn't say like uh, Jill uh, Jill wore hers to a fancy ball or something like that. So cool. Um, and uh, so that's kind of a bummer. Uh, Jill, uh, uh, Cody said something like, you know, they fade away and Jill's like, oh, I wanted to keep those. Um it's this little throwaway line that in the book that for some reason everybody remembers. Like, oh yeah, Jill gets to keep her dress. That's cool. I forgot about that because it, it is something that mo- movies tended to do, where really all of them, where it's almost like, almost like Narnia was like an alternate reality as opposed to no, no, it's a doorway into another world. That world is just as real as this one. Things can go back and forth, as Magician's nephew emphasizes more than any other, but. I think I want to, as far as my my thoughts on this series, I will end on talking about Puddle Glum because as I kind of figured out right in episode two when he's introduced, it's like okay, this isn't this isn't really the Puddle Glum I know from the book, but doesn't mean it can't still be a good Puddle Glum. And you know, and one of the things was Puddle Glum was just such a coward and such a downer, and he's not really a downer in the book. He's actually trying to constantly put a bold face on things. Anyway, blah blah blah, whole thing in episode two to talking about that. But I was like, okay, but how will I feel after we get to the payoff, after Puddleglum's famous speech? As it's, I don't really like calling it a speech, but yeah, that's what people call it. Um, and I think that Tom Baker d- did a nice job wrapping up this character and 
I thought that pretty much felt like Polo Glum to me when he was delivering the speech and when he was, you know what, for all I know, you're right. But you, you know what? I'm just going to put a bold face on things. And you know what? I may as well just live like a Narnian. And I loved his delivery of the line. I may as well live like a Narnian, even if there isn't any Narnia. I just love it. As he kind of comes back as it, it just, just like it's like kind of a parting shot, even if there isn't any Narnia. So that really felt like polyglum to me. Unfortunately, all, all of it, like I said, it was kind of undercut by other elements in that scene that were wrong. That didn't set it up or pay it off properly. But I will say, yeah, uh, in that scene, I thought, Tom Baker did a nice job, and he felt more like Polo Glum from the book to me. Uh, does it? And, and it? Um, and I think it does for that, that for that character. It feels like a it feels like growth for this version of Polo Glum, where maybe the BBC version is he's all despair and Debbie Downer, assuming the worst constantly all the time. But then in this scene, in this moment of despair, he's the one that like decides to put a bold face on it. Now, in the book, we kind of realize, well, that's always been happening. This is always how Polyglum has been, even though it didn't feel like it at the time. And here it seems like uh, he starts out very despairing and ends up being more hopeful by the end. So that's not exactly the Polyglum from the book. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's very different. But I think it's a – but this is still a – a decent version of Puddle Glum and still complements the themes of hope and despair from the silver chair. Uh, not exactly in the same way, but it does complement the story. So uh, I don't, as a, as someone that dearly loves Puddle Glum is just the character in the book being one of my favorite things created by the hand of man. Um, this is not the Puddle Glum from the book, but overall I still do uh, enjoy this version of Puddle Glum. And um, he, he does, uh, he still aids a lot of the essential themes of the story, although not quite in the same way. So I am fine with this version of Polo Glum, and I'm fine with Tom Baker's performance, even though it's definitely not quite the way I see Polo Glum from the book. I think I agree. I, I think it's it's helped by, I think he was playing a slightly different Polo Glum. I think that, I don't know, this would be a toss-up, in my opinion, to, between him and um, maybe Kamala Powers, uh, Jill, but I think he's probably the best actor um, oh, it, I mean, he's good, but yeah, I think, uh, but uh, Kamala Powers and David Thwaites, I think, are absolutely, the, uh, they are these standouts. Um, like, I think Tom Baker's good. I don't think he's great. I, mean, I think, like, Warwick Davis is Reaper Chief, I think, is better. Um, honestly, and are you talking you know, about the portrayal so, of the character or the, just the quality of acting to that character? Even I guess just, character. oh, I guess it's quality of acting in general. As far mm. as how accurate they are to the book, is that kind of what you're getting at? No, I'm talking about just how good an actor they are. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, as far as the performances that stand with me, yeah, I think the two kids really stand out to me. I think, you know, even in previous uh, you know, previous adaptations, I think Warwick Davis stood out to me more. Honestly, and I, and I know and, and Cody's going to hate me. Cody mentioned this in the Facebook group, but I love John Mark Perret as Prince Caspian in the Prince Caspian adaptation. I think I might like him even more than Samuel West in some ways. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, I think I, mean, I thought he did a good job. I I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to tell because sometimes I feel like the hardest person, the hardest role to act as is like a normal person. Mm-hmm. It's hard to act like, yeah, like uh-huh. a normal person. That's actually pretty right. challenging. Like act normal. Like what? But right. uh, that's why everyone likes to play villains and things because they're eccentric and odd, and you get to do and credit and credit to things. Tom Baker for pretty much playing Puddle Glum. But relatively speaking. 
he, he really could have done something more out there and over the top and made Puddle Glum a creature, a marsh wiggle. But he, 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 he it, it's a it's a fairly restrained performance. Yeah, I, I guess what I liked, he didn't always seem like he was overacting. He didn't because there's a lot of overacting in the BBC series. He, I didn't really see him overacting. I think he and overall, what I just felt like he was that character, even if I thought it was getting upstaged. You know, my, my I think the best definition of a good actor is the old line where you know Harrison Ford said this talent scout was like you're never going to succeed in acting he goes oh really what why he goes well when tony curtis walks across the screen people carrying a bag of groceries people look at him and say that's a movie star and you're not like that and harrison ford said i thought people were supposed to look at that and say that's a guy carrying a bag of groceries <laughs> you know? exactly exactly yeah. and I, I i largely believe that yeah tom baker is that character and but i believe that even more about david waits and kamala powers she just has the power what can i say <laughs> there you go and David Thwaites has me waiting for more from him because I'm so excited. Oh my gosh! Oh my What's he doing now? <laughs> and Tom Baker, Tom Baker, acting. I was Tom Baker you. just has everything for a good actor. He just has all the right ingredients, you know. Ha ha! Very funny. I think I think that's time to wrap. <laughs> it's time to wrap this up, guys. Um, when, when we when we've devolved into puns, oh, he's that's still when you doing know stuff too. He's producing uh, now. David Thwaites. He produced, he produced Black Swan with Natalie Portman. That's crazy. David Thwaites did. That's a great movie. Yes. What? <laughs> I gotta look this up. I love Black Swan. <laughs> wow. No, no. Now we're on a great. Google deep dive. Okay. It is. T- we, 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 we've we've and it's done the, the same David Thwaites. Who knew? We, we, <laughs> Who we, knew? We've done the puns. <laughs> now we've gotten to the IMDb deep dive. We got it. We've got to wrap this up. Uh, Jim fan. We've reached the end of this BBC Silver Chair series. Um, now, according to a poll I, fo- I posted in the Talking Beast Facebook group at the time of this recording, if you could just hold on for a moment while I pull up the current results, uh, I asked the uh, our, our listeners in the Facebook group which uh, was their favorite BBC adaptation. And at, at, at the time of this recording, it's exactly 50%. The majority say the Silver Chair uh, followed by Don Treader with 31%. Uh, how do you feel about that assessment, Jim Fan? Uh, overall thoughts on the silver chair, and is it the best of the, BB- the Narnia BBC quadrilogy? I think so, yeah. Um, now, that's not to say it doesn't have its own issues, but I think out of the four, I feel like it was the most cohesive and i'm actually very curious because when we were doing the rewatch for these podcasts we watched them in episodes now my recollection of watching the silver chair i've only ever watched it as a single film in the past single three-hour film yeah right and i don't recall having the same thoughts about the pacing as i do in the episode so i'm actually curious to go back and watch it as a single film as opposed to episodes because I do think there was an aspect of that that translated to the film style a little bit better like sorry but you, I could you, be totally think, making that up like you suspect it might be better as a three-hour movie you're saying or as episodes I'd be curious I think it might be better as the three hours but okay. I'll be I will go back and watch it as one chunk and I will report back okay just gonna watch 
all of them all over again. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Let's, Let's watch do these it. all over again, but this time, non-episode. Just as a single episodes. chunk, and then we'll do an episode on no, it. Let, no, let's just watch the full uh, 12-hour BBC story and then do a review of that. That can be what we do. <laughs> we'll just have one long day. We'll live we'll stream just... it. Live stream um, it. There you go. Uh, Prince Rillian, your th- overall thoughts on BBC's The Silver Chair. What do you think of it, and uh, where does it rank among the BBC Narnia adaptations? I'm going to hedge a bit because I have not really watched the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and Prince Caspian mini, 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 mini series since I was probably in the single-digit age range. Um I, I thought it was better than Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I just felt like was so hit and miss. Um, I, I just felt like even scene to scene, there were some scenes I, I still loved. I thought were so good and I wouldn't want to change them very much. And then there were some that were, I was like, really? Really? This is just odd. <laughs> you know, uh, it was just hard for me to enjoy. Here, I, I felt like I wasn't taken out of the experience very much compared to the others. Um I thought the acting, it relied so heavily on um, some just good actors. I mean, basically, you had good actors carrying every scene. Um, So that was uh, a big help to this one. Um, In my memory, yeah, I think it's better done than Lion in the Woods of the Wardrobe um, or Prince Caspian. But um, yeah, I'd have to probably rewatch those uh, to truly give an informed opinion. But uh, no, I... I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a lot more fun watching it to then discuss it with you guys than to just watch it. But uh, I did, I did enjoy. It. I thought, you know, um, I I almost feel like it's an adaptation I could endorse. Like if someone read the books and said, let me put it this way: someone said, "Oh my goodness, I read I read these." I, okay, I, I love Narnia now. I've read all seven books. I've got to see everything Narnia. What should I go out and experience? You know, I'd probably be sooner to say, okay, there's this BBC series out there. They're from the 80s and early 90s. They're really, uh, you know, they're very low budgets. Um, they are kind of, they're all cult classics within the Narnia community. And I would tell them probably maybe the one to, I don't know if you want to watch it, the only, if you only want to watch one, I would say watch the Silver Chair. Absolutely. Uh, now, I will say, I wonder if the, maybe the previous, Adaptations, Wardrobe, Caspian, Don Treader, they set the bar at a certain place. And then when you get to Silver Chair, it's like, <laughs> That's whoa, true. this is kind of good. This is kind of good, actually. <laughs> I mean, there's um, no bowling pin beaver, so how bad exactly. can it be? Although, although I will <laughs> just better say, or worse. They're, they're in the background of the snow dance. They are snowball. the beavers? They're not the beavers. There's something else. It's not the beavers. There's a big porcupine. Yeah, it, por- there's something but right behind them that is very disturbing looking. And I rewound it because I was like, is that this the is, beavers? Wait, and it, I was like, I wait, don't think so. Wait, this is during the not snow dance scene? <laughs> yeah, the not snow dance. Like right after they get pulled out. Like right Let before Let me take dance. a look here. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it could be wrong. The, honestly, <laughs> I, I really hope they're there. Because that would that would be <laughs> that a would fun be little. That would be a fun little. I couldn't little... figure out what they were. All I saw was like, I was like, is it a platypus? It's like, like how E.T. is in the Phantom Menace. Um. Let me see. They're I forgot about that. Here. He's in the Phantom Menace. Uh huh. I'm seeing a. Ba- I'm seeing the badger, probably truffle hunter. Uh, I'm seeing that big giant porcupine, obviously. I don't think so. a platypus. I don't think so. Um, 
There's a, a there's someone in just a <laughs> straight up bunny suit. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Oh my god! Where's the bunny suit? Uh, I gotta well, see it, this. Well, I, I'm looking at the uh, episode, ep, ep, the single episode version at 1651. There's just straight up somebody. In a, it looks like bunny pajamas. Uh, Truffle hunter. You know, th- 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 there wasn't too much uh, making fun is it of like, the, Is it like the A Christmas Story pink bunny it, it, That's pretty much what it is. Um, now, like, there, you know, we, I was just saying before we started recording, you know, there wasn't too much making fun of the costumes and effects cause, throughout this series because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're oh, not they bad. Oh, they made up for it. They made and, up for and, it. And we, and that, so why not have a few minutes of that right at the end here? Um, uh, really, you can keep looking. Let me know what you find. I'm gonna share my overall thoughts. Uh, really, and I would echo what you said about this is like the one adaptation that uh, you might recommend to like a new Narnia fan, and that I certainly out of the BBC series, I got the most pleasure out of. Uh, and I would even one up, and maybe this is going a little bit far. This might speak to just uh, going into this with fairly low expectations. Because, you know, again, I thought Wardrobe was all right, but yeah, probably still probably below average. Still not liking it, like in parts of it. Really hating uh, Prince Caspian and then being trying Dawn Shredder. Some of it good, most of it pretty frustrating. And then getting the silver chair. And my feeling is one of the things I've said at the end of all the BBC discussions. I love I'm watching. Oh, there's the fox. He got frozen into stone. The what? The fox. He got turned into stone. What? When Eustace comes up. When Eustace comes up. Hang on a second. Oh, the the fox from the Christmas party and line the witch in the wardrobe. Yeah, he's up on the. Oh, Oh, the bunny costume. Awesome. Uh, 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 Upper left there. Uh, yeah, upper left. <laughs> okay, that's at the sixteen thirty-five mark of the ep- of the episode for those following along at home. And they all have, have no problem up. recognizing really. I, I, well I done, what, everyone. I, I love what a sweaty mess <laughs> Eustace is. I love it. He's just like, what the heck? And David Thwaites does that so well. I think those are duckbill platypuses. <laughs> In Narnia, who knew? In Narnia. Wow. wow. We're a- adding to the mythos, BBC. Um <laughs> Anyway, at least we know that the good guys. <laughs> so, look, one <laughs> of the reasons the witch's army. One of the reasons the BBC Silver Chair is the best BBC is that yeah, we don't have to deal with talking animal costumes very much. Um, but that's not the only reason. I, I think that this is the only BBC adaptation where I get kind of I mean, caught up. Might be a little bit much, but I kind of get caught up in the story a little bit. And, oh, I want to see what's going to happen next. And there may have even been a couple moments when the credits started rolling and I went, oh, I kind of wanted to see you know, the, the next scene there. Just a little bit. This is the only one where all the other ones I keep getting, oh, this is good. This is good. Ah, oh, something yanks me out of the story. In the case of Wardrobe, like, the, hey, it's going okay. And then the Bullington beaver, Beavers show up and it's just, ah, and I can't. I'm pulled out of the story. Um, or, or it's something else. And with John Treader, a lot of it was the pacing. But – this is the first one where I really enjoyed this as a plot. I enjoyed this as a story. I enjoyed, oh, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens to the next scene. And there were several moments that really made me feel something. Yes, it has its issues. It's got some things they rush through they shouldn't rush through. Um, I would like to see Jill a little bit more firmly established as a main character. It, it's um, a good example of how you may, it, not to interrupt, but just we've talked about what's the best format for Narnia and maybe a 
Netflix mini series type where it's like, we can do two episodes. We can do six episodes. We can do eight episodes. We don't care. We're writing the book, you know, or the, or the we're, we're making it up. As we, we can make a movie if this one feels more yeah, like a exactly. movie. Yeah, exactly. Where I like, I think that that might, because I, I was thinking, you know what? I wonder what they would have done differently if it was like, okay, we have six and a half episodes or we'll do mm-hmm. seven, you know, but anyway. Right. Yeah, I think um, this is the I've, I've ended every BBC discussion by saying, you know, there's some good stuff in here, but I'm never going to recommend this to somebody who, hey, I'm, I, I've got some time to kill over the weekend. I would love to binge a fantasy series. What would you recommend? <laughs> I'm not going to say, have you seen BBC's Chronicles of Narnia television miniseries? Um, but have I will say, Rings like, of look, power? No. <laughs> that said, with the silver chair, I probably would This wouldn't. is better than Rings of Power. Way better. <laughs> With the silver chair, yeah, I probably wouldn't like for the right person. I might, I might say, oh, it's low budget and it's got a, that charm to it. And uh, I'll also say this: this is easier if you to absorb. There's some people. I grew up watching old stuff. I grew up watching a lot of foreign cinema and British uh, TV and uh, movies. If you're not used to it, because there's a difference in style even today, right? With big budget British films, still feel different. And so it depends on what the person's used to as well. You know, if this is someone like, oh, I've, I always am watching 80s, 90s BBC shows, you know what? Then you're going to have a lot easier time adjusting this than other people would. Right. Yeah. And I, I think this is one where I, I would be surprised if in my future I actually do end up recommending this to someone like just like who hasn't read the books. But it's not – I'll say this. It's not nearly as inconceivable to me as the other Narnia adaptations. To me, it's just oh. someone just – at the, the other BBC Narnia adaptations, excuse me. Yeah. Um, and it's the one that as – you kind of alluded to this really in that as an adaptation, I don't cringe nearly as much. The idea of someone watching this having not read the book – I, I still cringe, but a lot less than the other BBC Narnia adaptations. A, a the, 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 this one has some and merit. That just, is high praise. Yes, this one just has some merit as, just, just as a story. I just think it has some some merit to it that the others don't. This this one like it, it certainly has like you talked about lip service in the checklist, and it has pl- there's plenty of that in here. But there's also lots of things like one example would be moving. There I have another name. Where it's it does feel like they are actually telling this story, occasionally making some tweaks, and it doesn't feel like they're just reciting the book. It really right. feels for for, right. for, for for a lot of this, there's plenty yeah. of parts where they are just reciting the book. But for I'm a lot of it, it feels like, like they are properly the retelling the story, not just reciting the book. Uh, did C.S. Lewis write Aslan saying it in the Silver Chair? No. Could as uh, C.S. Lewis have written it? Very feasibly, he could have. And that's the way I look at all the adaptations. If they make a change, you know, as I was like, okay, it's one thing to say, to put some, a scene in there or something where, well, the author didn't put that in there. But I get really upset when I was like, you know what? The author would never have written that. That's when I start to get up in arms. Yeah. So to me, this is this is the only BBC adaptation, though, where overall, again, there's plenty of examples of, of uh, yes, they're just reciting the, the, the lines in the book and they're not giving it the weight they need. But- this is, but overall, this is the only BBC adaptation to me that feels like they're actually trying to just tell the story as their first priority. They're just trying to tell the story proper here, and they do a, a decent, a decent job with a lot of it. Um, as a as a Narnia fan, I can say I overall enjoyed this. How much my expectations from not really liking the other BBC 
uh, series factored in. Not sure how much of, and also how much of what was I just kind of transplanting what I know from the book and the emotion from the book to to the series. Who can say? But I can tell you, I really, I enjoy, I overall enjoyed this. Is it, is it great? Definitely not. But it's all right. I, uh, it's, I enjoyed myself. It's good overall. enough. Yes, good and enough. I enjoyed chatting with you, fine people. Um, yes. And maybe we'll find an excuse to revisit these again because this is really, really fun. Hey, if we keep going for another 10, 12, 15 years, who knows? We'll um, circle back. My kids will take over the podcast at that point. <laughs> Yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> Just have them run it. The next, uh, the talking beast, the next generation. Have to be, you'll have to be King Reeling at that point. There you go. Uh, One last thing I do want to say is, you know, Jim Fan, you weren't sure about are these better as, you know, three-hour movies or as episodes. Um, and again, it's been a very long time since I watched them as all one chunk. But my feeling is that they're a lot better as episodes. Um, and overall, how do I feel about the BBC series overall after after doing these podcast discussions? I still don't think they're very. I, I still don't think they're good. I that to me they're. I don't have. I'm not. I'm not saying I like them, but I have. I have an appreciation for. I have a little more respect for them overall. Um, I used to kind of have, I used to have like a total cringe, like, oh, BBC, I don't like BBC. I, I say the cringe is gone. The, you know, they, they, there's some things in it that do have some merit. They're not terrible. Uh, they're, they're all right, I guess, overall. So certainly uh, my feeling about Narnia BBC has softened a bit as a result of watching them more closely and watching them uh, episodically. So that's what I've gotten out of this. I look at these sort of like, I was a huge Sherlock Holmes fan growing up, still am. And there's a lot of a lot of different actors who played Sherlock Holmes. And if you ask a lot of people about like the old Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce movies, uh, which is considered like like that he was the Sherlock that made the hat famous was Basil Rathbone. He was the one. And you talk to people like the 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 they're terrible adaptations. They're all like semi-original, like they'll have like a new name. And a, a little element of one story that's pulled in another one. So they kind of cannibalize different stories to make these original stories. But you know what? People are in the Watson is not like the Watson in the book. He's a complete idiot, which Watson in the book was like a normal, intelligent human, right? But you know what? They're endearing. And people are like, yeah, they're old and they're cheesy. And but there's still some good stuff in there. There's some love there, you know. It's 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 kind of like that with me. It's like, no, I would never. Like, oh, I've I love the Sherlock Holmes books. I want to watch the best Sherlock Holmes adaptation. I would never say, oh, go watch those old movies from the 1950s, 60s. But you know what? I say once you're in it for a while, like you know what, you want to kill a couple hours, watch something kind of crazy and old and cool. You know what? You, just don't don't scrutinize it too much and just try to enjoy it. There's some yeah, there. just enjoy it. That that's how I'd have to look at that. These us uh, scrutinize something too much? No, us I would never. never do a six part podcast about it. I would never <laughs> recommend that. Uh, uh, listeners, thank you so much for joining us on this journey going through this BBC series. Please post a comment below. Uh, m- maybe you've never posted a comment on a Talking Beast episode before. You've just been a listener. Become a become a commenter today. Let this be the first time. Post a comment. Tell us what you thought of this BBC series, especially the Silver Chair. Thank you, really, an engine fan. Uh, always a pleasure to uh, analyze and occasionally overanalyze something. And let's keep doing it. We hope you enjoyed this season of Talking Beasts, the Narnia podcast. Visit narniaweb.com to join our community and stay up to date on the latest Narnia news. 
please post a comment or question below or in the Talking Bees Facebook group. Special thanks to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our Knights of Narnia web. Thank you so much for your support. Until next season, further up and further in. Thank you.